Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detlaff, and I am busy chiseling a statue to our favorite mischievous boy, Bart Simpson. Eat my shorts, huff my books. Uh, we're going to put this one right in the middle of town. Oh, that's so interesting that you're making a statue because I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm also chiseling a statue of um, the one man who's contributed the most to all of Western society. Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> um, I feel it's hard. He moves so fast that you gotta, you gotta just really, uh, you know, it's just really hard to get a good glimpse of him. He's always going so quick. Right, right. You tell him to sit still, but like he can't stop tapping his feet. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, all of this, all of this nonsense aside, uh, what you just heard uh, in the intro here is an audio excerpt from a recent protest and counter protest at a statue of Louis the Ninth. Uh, it's titled The Apotheosis of St. Louis, and you can guess that it's in St. Louis. <laughs> um, the recording itself comes from uh, a journalist named Sophie Hurwitz. Uh, she's cool. Um, so thanks for letting We didn't ask you to use it, but we're just using it. So sorry, it's from, it's from your Twitter, whatever. <laughs> thanks for not listening to this podcast and complaining about it. Yeah, totally. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> the tack we're going to take here. Um, there's kind of a lot going on in the audio. Uh, and at the beginning, you get some some drum beats and some chants from Black Lives Matter protesters who are rallying around the statue to remove it um, because Louis the Ninth uh, isn't great. And then toward the end, you hear the voices of some Catholic and also alt-right counter protesters who are praying the rosary uh, in kind of response. Uh, it was a really tense moment this past Saturday, and so much stuff has happened since then it's kind of like it's hard to believe that it was saturday st louis has had a very tumultuous few days um maybe you've seen the uh the gun couple who who uh pointed guns at protesters that happened right after this this uh statue situation so just a lot of a lot of things history happens so much i cannot wait until they have statues of the khaki gun couple uh and people pray the rosary to defend that one <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. The <laughs> the wife and her tiny husband is what people have been saying on Twitter in St. Louis. Gun, I'm sorry, gun wife and tiny husband. That's great. He's very it. short. <laughs> yeah. Um all right. Well, as you probably know, the controversy over statues didn't start with this uh very dead Catholic saint, um, Louis the Ninth. Can you believe there were eight other Louis? It's hard to imagine. Uh, but this one, there might have been some after him, but who knows? Yeah, there's no way of knowing because we don't have statues all in one place. So we're t- all we know is there's a ninth, <laughs> uh, and you can draw your own conclusions from there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> in earlier weeks, we've seen uh, protesters rightly toppling statues of people like Christopher Columbus and Confederate generals, and um, you know, museums removing statues of particular presidents. And I don't know, a lot of st- it's a it's a bad time to be a statue right now. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the right has lost their mind over the whole thing, but the introduction of toppling the statues of Catholic saints in particular has given the conversation some more interesting wrinkles. We've hesitated to say anything about it on the podcast, not because we're against it by any stretch. Uh, you should definitely get rid of all these, uh, very bad statues, but it just seemed kind of (laughs) like, what else is there to say about it? Um, but it turns out there's actually a lot to say about it just leave it leave it to us whenever there's anything that happens we'll find something to say eventually maybe we'll not find right away the, but sooner or later the, the bizarre christian angle that you you didn't know was there that's right we'll do it that's our one good strength 
Um, yeah, so in light of all of the statue business this week, we're going to work through the situation um, by looking at it through the lens of Walter Benjamin and his theses on history <laughs> and also um, Marika Rose's theology of failure. This is it, right? This is the weird Christian take that we found. <laughs> we're going to read Walter Benjamin and we're going to read Marika Rose to talk about statues because what other way could you possibly do it? I have no idea. Yeah, the only other way would be to uh, assemble a series of smaller statues that could teach you the lessons you had to learn. Right. <laughs> if you think about it, a podcast is really just an audio statue that we're, we're here erecting. That's right. It's it's several statues passing through your mindscape at <laughs> rapid speed. I wish there's a better word for that, but it's, there's not. There's not, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Well, uh, the goal of these um, these audio statues passing through your mindscape is to figure out how Christians can actually take responsibility for their history rather than like ignoring it or being extremely silly about it part of taking responsibility i mean we think as sort of a reoccurring theme as podcast um part of taking responsibility for history might just be undoing the myths of the history that these statues represent altogether right like um how can you be held accountable for something if you won't even acknowledge the problem so that's maybe a place to start um and then we'll kind of get into the rest of it from there um, but I guess before we do, let me just really quickly tell you a few things to kind of contextualize the conversation about statues. And we can we can use this uh, Louis the Ninth statue in St. Louis. It, the, the official name, I think I said it already, but it is the Apotheosis of St. Louis. So it's a cool name for sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll talk about that one kind of as a case study. And then um, I think we're going to talk about St. Junipero as well, because that one was another Catholic statue that got torn down by the protesters. Um well, okay, first of all, the, the Louis the Ninth statue is not torn down. The rally was just people showing up to say that they they ought to tear it down. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so quick quick uh, thing about Louis the Ninth. He was French. He was Catholic. Um, he lived from 1214 to 1270, a, a time period everyone's super familiar with. Um, <laughs> and uh, the main contentions, I think, of the protesters who were anti-statue um, uh, you know, are that uh, Louis the ninth was involved in some objectively bad things. Objectively Mm -hmm. is a word that will be complicated later, but I'm using it in a rhetorical sense here. Um, So uh, Louis the ninth, part of the seventh and eighth crusades. um, So not great. Uh, You you know, a completely uh, stupid war that really does nothing uh, for anybody. Definitely isn't about the Christianity we know and love, but yet it is still uh, an integral part of the history of Christianity that we are part of. Um, and there's also this whole thing that happens during his reign called the Disputation of Paris, which ends up being this um, hugely damaging and anti-Semitic event um, where a whole bunch of Jews die, um, kind of sanctioned by Louis the Ninth. Um, so these things are kind of like what what's under his belt. Uh, these are the things that the protesters showed up to complain about. These are the reasons that people don't think St. Louis should be apotheosized in a statue. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there it is. So um, I guess kind of, you know, you, you heard the audio picture before uh, the, the audio statue at the beginning of the episode <laughs> um, where people are upset. You know, there are these two sides kind of coming together to argue. And that's what you'd expect, I guess. Um, but you might be wondering, well, what is the what is the official sort of statement from the Catholic Church here? Like, what's the Archdiocese of St. Louis saying? That's a great question um, <laughs> that I've just forced upon you. That's uh, the best thing you can do at a, at a press conference. I don't know why people don't do it more. Yeah, if you just hoist all the questions you want to answer onto people, uh, it goes a lot better for you. 
so they teach you um, in school <laughs> these days. Uh, yeah, well, so the Archdiocese of St. Louis, they responded to the whole event in a few different ways. So first of all, there were priests actually there at this rally. And um, I got to tell you, the protesters didn't love them. <laughs> and uh, mostly because they were, uh, well, they're doing some goofy stuff there. But anyways, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, they respond. Uh, this is how they responded to the situation on Twitter. And it's kind of silly if you know just a few things about the history of Louis IX. So they say this, the history of the statue of St. Louis, uh, the king is one founded in piety and reverence before God for non-believers, respect for one's neighbor. The reforms that St. Louis implemented in French government focused on impartial justice, protecting the rights of its subjects, uh, steep penalties for royal officials abusing power and a series of initiatives to help the poor. King Louis IX's renowned work in charity helped elevate him into sainthood. Um, his daily suppers were shared with numerous beggars whom he invited to the royal table. Um, so that's kind of the the picture that they paint. And they're saying um, kind of in this release on Twitter um, that, you know, and we should we should we should like take a, a page from Louis IX's book and we should kind of be these types of people, too. But they do they do leave out the part where Louis IX says, um, if you if a if a Jewish person is is saying something bad about Jesus, you can stab them. They don't tell us that part about Louis <laughs> IX's life. They don't tell us about um, all of the people he killed in the Crusades. They don't tell us about you know all all of this other kind of stuff, and that sucks, right? Because it's just like uh, the willful forgetting of history. It's shaping history to serve a, pol- a political purpose, and um, that's uh, I shouldn't have to tell you, but that's bad. <laughs> uh, it is bad. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really complicated thing. And we'll we'll kind of open it up, I guess, when we move to St. Junipero Serra as well. Uh, but it raises all kinds of questions about things like what are you supposed to do with saints? And, uh, you know, not only how do you take responsibility for the Christian legacy, but um, how do you sort out the fact that we do glorify these people in a real way, especially if you're Catholic, but not only. Um, we glorify these people who have uh, built a very bad Christian order, as Amorio put it, or helped us to see um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I think that, like, I don't know, <laughs> the St. Louis Archdiocese responding is kind of, like, doubly sad because uh, <laughs> I was just reading, like, before this past weekend that in St. Louis um, there was a cardinal named Cardinal Ritter who uh, desegregated Catholic schools in 1947. And at the time, uh, white parents had said that they were going to sue um, him or the diocese or whatever. And he uh, responded by saying that um, anybody who took part in the lawsuit would be excommunicated. So, like, <laughs> there's a, a precedent in St. Louis Catholicism for understanding, you know, like, pretty heavy-handed measures against racism, etc. Um, but the fact that the the statue is something like a sacred cow or... Um, uh, something that stands in for the church's uh, commitment to peace or something like that is a really unfortunate uh, about face on that kind of legacy. Yeah, totally. It's sad because it doesn't have to be the way that it is, right? <laughs> they yeah. could um, they could very easily, like anyone could, understand that history is nuanced and people aren't all good and aren't all bad and that maybe, you know, you got to be careful about who you're, who you're raising up and, uh, you know, you can also correct correct mistakes that you've made. Yeah, it just it, it is a bummer. I don't know. It, 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 but that story, I guess, highlights that there's, you know, there is like uh, it's not that Catholicism in St. Louis is just corrupt or something. Right. It's that there are these alternate histories that are kind of there. Um, but uh, we just have to like learn how to pay attention to them and, and center different stories in different ways. Yeah. 
So speaking of that, uh, it's good to get the um, Junipero Serra example on the table here too, and then we can maybe draw some general um, connections, and uh, that'll take us into thinking about history a little bit differently. So um, you mentioned uh, King Louis the Ninth. Um, Saint Junipero Serra is uh, another figure who has been controversial for a long time. Um, I don't know if you've been following like the cultural conversation around Catholicism for a while in the U.S. You will already remember Saint Junipero Serra because he was recently canonized, pretty freshly, uh, when Pope Francis came to visit the U.S. just uh, a few years ago. And it was a big deal back then because uh, a number of indigenous people and uh, people who support them uh, said that, you know, this person should not be canonized because of his role in the colonization of the U.S. and also his treatment of indigenous people. The church at that time responded by saying that Junipero Serra had actually acted as an advocate for indigenous people and tried to uh, tell the Spaniards to be less abusive um, but of course, indigenous people were like, okay, but he was still actually abusive and still maintained uh, uh, an abusive system. And the missions in California were very abusive and um, enslaved indigenous people, etc. So there was all kinds of um, controversy around it. And, uh, you know, he's a saint now. So obviously, the, um, the people advocating for indigenous peoples in that situation uh, did not win, at least for decolonizing types of indigenous perspectives that did not come through. Uh, so now, um, in the midst of all of these protests, a statue to Junipero Serra was torn down um, not too long ago, uh, in the beginning of June, I think it was. And uh, that has kind of reignited the same controversies that happened during the canonization, but also now again, kind of thinking through these problems of, well, how do we remember? What does it mean to be a saint and all that, all that sort of thing? Um, so we'll turn to that in a minute, but I want to mention another very bad response from the church, which was that from Archbishop Salvatore uh, Cordiglione, who is, I guess, out there in San Francisco. I don't know much about him, but he decided to respond to this event by offering exorcism prayers at the site of the statue that fell down, um, which seems pretty excessive to me. But let me read a little bit more. Um, this is from an article in Catholic News, News Agency. Um, it says, uh, uh, Cordelione said, evil has made itself present here. So we've gathered together to pray for God, to ask the saints for their intercession above all our blessed mother in an act of reparation, uh, pretty wild term, asking God's mercy on us and on the whole city that we might turn our hearts back to him. Um, he goes on to talk about the blasphemy of tearing down the statue and says it's sacrilegious and that is an, an act of the evil one. Um, so that's the general sort of spirit that the church has decided, at least one segment of the church has decided to kind of understand this event um, within, you know, the terms of this is a demonic agency or demonic act. Um, I think what this and the St. Louis example, both of them sort of reveal is that the church just has a very hard time um, both memorializing itself and understanding what it means to have been the architects of a very violent order that people are still suffering under um, and kind of thinking that like the complications of somebody's personal life or the strange vicissitudes of history erase all of the, the suffering today or something. Um, so we could talk more about that in a minute, but Matt, um, anything that really strikes you, I guess, about these examples of how the church is trying to stick up for these statues that are falling down? 
Well, it's just like disappointing, I guess. <laughs> just disappointing that um uh that we have such a hard time with with history and understanding um understanding our culpability in it, right? Like I, I don't know why it just seems kind of strange to me that like, okay, I mean, the, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, they could be like against the removal of the statue. Like that's one thing, but I don't know why they would also be against understanding history. <laughs> like mm-hmm. other than like not wanting to be caught up in the sins of the past or something, I guess it's just a bummer that, um, that that level of intellectual honesty isn't there. That's I think disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's also just strange that uh, the church is like struggling to deal with both its temporal and eternal dimensions, if you will, at the same time. Um, you know, when I was when I first heard about the Junipero statue coming down, uh, <laughs> I had this kind of weird thought. Um, and I don't really know if it's good or not, but it's one that I had that I'll share, <laughs> which was um, if uh, Junipero Serra is truly a saint, you know, being a saint doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just me- it means all kinds of things. But um, you know, lots of saints have really bizarre, complicated lives. If Junipero Serra is indeed really a saint, if the church is right about that, then surely as a saint, he would understand why people would tear down his statue or or he would surely have been, you know, purged of the desire to be a colonist. And, and he, too, would probably want to, I would guess, uh, destroy a statue like this. And the same for King Louis, you know, um, if if he's truly a saint, then uh, it shouldn't be much of a surprise that people would uh, uh, be opposed to that kind of thing. And uh, I think that's the the one take that I would want to want to sort of say is that the saintly life um, shouldn't insulate you from critique, but should hopefully uh, encourage you to ask those kinds of hard questions. And it's unfortunate that the church has doubled down on the opposite that to be a saint is to apparently not be held accountable. That's uh, seems to be the message that's being sent. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it though. I like that, that, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you, for, for that reading, you have to believe in purgatory and also heaven, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can imagine that all these saints, they're up there. They've been purged of all of the, uh, the bad desires or whatever. I don't know. All the vices, who knows? I don't know how to talk like a Catholic. But they're up there and now they're just embarrassed. They're like, oh, God, please remove these statues. We've done so many bad things. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, okay. so the church has a hard time remembering. And uh, as you can imagine, like we said earlier, there are all kinds of commentaries floating around about it in magazines that you can read. And I don't know. I don't really encourage you to read them. But (laughs) if you must, they're out there. Uh, I think the strangest thing has been that many uh, progressive Catholics have been pretty okay with like understanding that, yeah, you should remove Confederate statues, right? That's something that everybody um, on the sort of progressive left is more or less okay with getting behind. Um, It it has been more complicated with saints, I think, because now, uh, you know, it's one thing to say that you're not attached to the Confederacy, but it's another thing to say that you're not attached to this image of the church. And I think that at least raises a lot of questions for how we understand history and relate to it. And not only from a revolutionary perspective, which is what we'll talk about with Benjamin, um, but also from the perspective of just Christian people who inherit all kinds of garbage, which we'll talk about with Marika. So maybe that's a good way to turn to Benjamin. So if if you don't know who Walter Benjamin is, don't worry. (laughs) He was a really radical Jewish philosopher and literary theorist and revolutionary communist guy um he wrote all kinds of extremely wild and interesting texts and uh he ultimately 
died fleeing the Nazis, um, unfortunately, and uh, is really a, a pretty powerful thinker. And among all the stuff that he has written, I think it's pretty fair to say the most famous thing that he ever wrote is an essay on yeah. the concept of history. Um, if you go to graduate school and you have to learn about critical theory, you'll read it at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and a lot of theologians read it as well. It's a very kind of eschatological text, but it's basically a bunch of theses about history and a revolutionary idea of what history is. So it's kind of bizarre and heady, um, but we're going to pull out just a few of the the theses that might help us kind of understand like how revolutionaries can relate to history and also what that means for memory and memorializing. So, uh, Matt, can I turn it to you to maybe do you have anything more you want to say to introduce the document or anything? Yeah, well, OK, so I'll say this and then I'll get to the real yeah. the real crux of the situation. If you're a person who wants to read philosophy, but you don't have a lot of time in your hands, this is a good one because <laughs> it's not super long. It's just like some little chunks. You can read it throughout your day and then you could just think about it forever <laughs> until you want to until you want to read something else. Um, it's cool. It's a good, it's a good thing to read for sure. It's on Marxist.org. It's everywhere on the Internet. You can find it pretty easily. So uh, check it out. You uh, do. PCs. You do have to have like Wikipedia nearby because he'll uh, drop like a thousand names of like extremely weird um, like German uh, theorists or like movements <laughs> that you have right. to know a little something about. But uh, don't let it hold you back. Yeah, exactly. It's not accessible. I guess that I just meant it was short. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, so this essay, the whole the, this essay, these theses, it's not an essay, it's theses. So I'll try to be correct about it. But uh, the whole point is that history is unsurprisingly kind of complicated. Um, Benjamin's philosophy of history offers kind of like a critique of the theological way that some have read Marx's theory of historical materialism. Um, Benjamin opens up these theses by explaining that, you know, while historical materialism seems like an objective, transparent, immortal science, uh, it's actually not so much that way. He uh, he does introduce this whole thing with uh, one of my favorite uh, media history things, the Mechanical Turk, which uh, it, it's a really funny story that he includes. But basically, it's this like um, it, it, like at the sort of like this Baroque moment, all of these um, all of these like like European clockmakers started making these things called automata or automatons like they're basically like clockwork robots and uh, they could do these really incredible things um, like uh you know, like there was one that would, you know, play violin or there's one that could write its name or something. And these like really like incredible machines. Um, but there's one that's called the Mechanical Turk. And um, it's like this machine that can play chess. And it's wild because like in the story is like it could play chess, but it could also beat you at chess, which is like <laughs> a crazy thing. Um, and uh, the trick of it, though, was was that it wasn't actually a robot, but there was actually another person inside the robot, like controlling it and beating you at chess every time. <laughs> and um this is how Benjamin thinks of like history kind of works that it, it seems like we can see, you know, it seems like it's all mechanical, just moving parts. Things are just happening. Um, but a, a, in fact, when we look at history, we're actually looking at it through like a, a constructed moment. Someone's someone's behind the scenes, pulling the strings of history for us, kind of like putting it all out there. Um, so it's not like transparent. It's not objective. It's usually, you know, constructed in some way. There's a, there's a narrative when we tell historical narratives, um, and they are usually political in nature. Um, yeah. Can you, so, uh, real um, quick, before you move to the thesis, will you explain what historical materialism is for someone who might not know? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So historical materialism is a theory of history. Uh, it's Marx's philosophy of history. Um, basically, it's just that the you know the the material conditions um, will uh, inevitably end up like um, kind of producing certain types of subjects, and that the way history moves is through the struggle of class against class. And that's history for you. Instead of instead of history being about like, you know, great men like King Louis the Ninth or whatever, um, history is more about like how labor gets done, um, how labor is organized in society and how like uh, disputes within within labor, like the ruling class and the laboring class kind of um, come to pass. Is that enough? What else yeah. can we say about historical materialism? I think that's good. There's a lot that you could say, but you should. I okay. think it's probably best to keep it basic. <laughs> you did a great job. OK, great. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you, you can't just say, <laughs> can you say some things about historical materialism? Well, it's the most I, terrifying thing I've I ever know. asked. I asked you because I didn't want to do it. Uh, and you you made the mistake of saying the, the magic words. So uh, you had to complete the incantation. That's right. Whenever you say historical materialism, you're cursed until you can explain what it is. <laughs> That's right. It's like the worst <laughs> form of jinx. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. Um, okay, so there's that, right? So Benjamin thinks that historical materialism is kind of complicated because it's not just, um, it's not so clear and objective. Like, you know, when you're, when you're piecing together histories, you're doing it for a particular reason to prove a point, all of these things. History is not objective. It's, it's constructed. Okay. So Benjamin thinks that we get it wrong when we think of history as like an inevitable series of progressions too, that like, you know, um, there was feudalism and then feudalism led to the in, to industrialization and industrialization of at least, you know, to capitalism and capitalism to socialism. And like, you know, that type of understanding, like where history is just going to mechanically work out in this particular direction of progress. Benjamin's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, that's um, that's I think actually a really good point, too, that just in general, just when you're thinking of history, that uh, what's going to happen is not predetermined by any sort of mechanical means, right? It, it's all kind of up in the air. And, um, well, Benjamin goes beyond saying it's up in the air. Benjamin puts it in this whole other very dramatic way. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit of the theses on history from Benjamin. And this is like probably the most famous thesis. Uh, and uh, you'll, if you, if you know anything about this essay already, you'll recognize it. And if you don't, this is the one. This is the one to bring up at a party and people will think, wow, that person's cool. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, they won't think that really. But they'll be like, wow, that person's read a book. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not synonymous with being cool. <laughs> All right. So here's um, here's Benny Means Thesis 9. There's a painting by Klee, Paul Klee. He's a painter. Look him up. Called Angelus Novus. An angel is depicted there who looks as though he were about to distance himself from something which he is staring at. His eyes are opened wide. His mouth stands open and his wings are outstretched. The angel of history must look just so. His face is turned toward the past, where we see the appearance of a chain of events. He sees one single catastrophe, which unceasingly piles rubble on top of rubble and hurls it before his feet. He would like to pause for a moment so fair, to awaken the dead and to piece together what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has caught itself up in his wings and is so strong that he that the angel can no longer close them. The storm drives him irresistibly into the future to which his back is turned. While the rubble heap before him grows sky high, that which we call progress is the storm. Um, so it's this pretty incredible painting. Uh, the, well, I mean, the painting is, is great. I don't, that's not important. <laughs> it's a pretty <laughs> incredible description of the painting, though, from Benjamin's side of things, right? 
that there's this uh, this angel being blown uh, by history. He can't see the future and can only see the past as things like, um, you know, unceasingly piling the rubble unceasingly piles higher on top of uh, on top of its other stuff. Right. That um, history is this like wild series of catastrophes that keeps happening, that keeps pushing people forward. Um, but we can't, uh, but the angel at least can't stop and kind of piece things together uh, because you're always moving. You're always going forward, right? You're always being pushed into the future um, and memorializing the past is a hard thing to to stop and do rightfully. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, this is, I don't know, Dean, what, what do you have to say about this thesis? Cause I think you are probably more, you're more of the Benjamin guy than me. <laughs> uh, we'll find out. Sorry. One second. All right, there was somebody uh, bumping some music out of my window, but they're gone now. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we'll find out. Um, I mean, I love this uh, thesis as much as the next person. It's a good one. It's a great one. Um, just a really, a really great thesis about history. Uh, <laughs> I think what I like most about it is that uh, it does a great job critiquing a, a liberal view of history, which is a, a progress view. I mean, it's also critiquing a, a Marxist view, too, but... Um, the idea is that, like you said, history isn't uh, an arrow moving in the direction of improvement or progress all the time. It's a big pile of wreckage that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And while it is critiquing that faith in the, the myth of progress, um, which is not necessarily what's at stake in like the toppling of a Confederate statue or a saint, I think that there's right. something in this thesis that is very important, which is precisely that history is that pile of wreckage. Um, because one thing that the Confederate statues or statues of saints are trying to accomplish or say is that these are not um, these are moments where, you know, uh, in the midst of all kinds of other stuff, uh, these are the moments we treasure or want to cherish. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, those moments are moments of wreckage. And that's what the protests are trying to express, that. Uh, these are monuments to a pile of debris uh, or monuments to the, the crushing force, at least, that, that turned some people into rubble. And I think that's really the key here for this moment is that uh, not only is it a critique of the myth of progress, but it's also uh, a critique of how we freeze certain moments in time as moments of bliss or moments of, uh, you know, testaments to when, when people were good or doing the right thing. And uh, that is the kind of thing that Benjamin wants to oppose. Um, we'll talk in a minute about how there is a little bit more to say about like the kind of memory you should cultivate because Benjamin does have a lot of time for that. Uh, but I think it's it's good to sort of zero in on this passage as providing uh, a general theory of history, which is that um, it's one one huge bummer that just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a good way to kind of draw attention to like the uh, the rubble. Uh, I like that. Um is a good explanation. I mean, statues are ways that people try to bring order to that, that, that chaos. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, that order definitely does serve a certain political purpose. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, using that rubble and weaponizing it, uh, for the ruling class against everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So cool. What else about Benjamin? What else do we need to say about him? Sure. All right. So you, you picked uh thesis nine. Um, great. Uh, fantastic thesis. the one that everyone talks about. Um, you can definitely bring that one up at the party and you won't be cool, but you will look like you read a book. If you're at a party full of people who already read books, though, you can talk about other theses in the philosophy of history and Benjamin's philosophy <laughs> of history, and you will look like an absolute genius. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to help you. 
look like the smartest person in the room. You're going to be the mechanical Turk of intelligence in that room. Uh, but we're the person pulling the strings behind the <laughs> yeah, scenes. That's right. That's right. We're making all your chess moves. Don't worry. You're going to win at the end. Um, so there are there are a lot of theses that we could talk about. And I don't know. You could do a whole podcast on like each of these theses, I guess, with how the, the kind of histories that we tell ourselves. Um, but I do want to pull out two, and conveniently, they are the two <laughs> two that are not uh, immediately preceding that, but pretty close to um, the one that you just read. So let me start out with uh, Thesis 7, um, because I think it, it gets at kind of some things we were just talking about. So this isn't the whole thing, but part of it. But Benjamin says, those who currently rule are the heirs of all those who have ever been victorious. Empathy with the victors thus comes to benefit the current rulers every time. This says quite enough to the historical materialist. Whoever until this day emerges victorious marches in the triumphal procession in which today's rulers tread over those who are sprawled underfoot. The spoils are, as was ever the case, carried along in the triumphal procession. They are known as the cultural heritage. In the historical materialist, they have to reckon with a distance observer. For what he surveys, or what they survey, as the cultural heritage is part and parcel of a lineage which they cannot contemplate without horror. It owes its existence not only to the toil of the great geniuses who created it, but also to the nameless drudgery of its contemporaries. There has never been a document of culture which is not simultaneously one of barbarism. And just as it is itself not free from barbarism, nor is it free from the process of transmission in which it falls from one set of hands into another. Uh, the historical materialist thus moves as far away from this as measurably possible. They regard it as their task to brush history against the grain. So there's a lot in this passage, you know, Benjamin always very kind of cryptic and lyrical. Uh, but I think, at least to me, the reason I thought this was particularly important is that um, the what Benjamin is trying to say is we live in a world where history is told by the victors. Uh, and it's told as heritage, right? It's, it's frozen as these kind of important moments. And that's really the the big sort of conversation that happens around both saints and Confederate statues and other ones, Columbus, etc. Um, mm -hmm. The story, right, is that even if you disagree, the, this is our culture, even if it's ugly, uh, whatever, and it's something we have to preserve as such. Uh, what Benjamin is calling our attention to is that cultural heritage is kind of a sanitized word for something that... Uh, comes dripping in blood and you know has to step over bodies to get here it's something that uh we we see as sanitized because it feels maybe far away but um in actual fact you know these belong to living historical moments that were moments of brutality and especially uh in societies built on things like colonialism they are moments built on the production of violence of an order of violence um, and I think that that, at least for me, is just one thesis that helps us get at what's happening in these conversations. Um, what Benjamin is saying when he talks about the role of the historical materialist, which I think I am in a certain respect, <laughs> in, a, in a Benjaminian way, uh, is that um, although these, these kind of statues or narratives present themselves as cultural heritage, uh, the historical materialist is supposed to kind of take a distant stance toward them and criticize them and understand what they really say or really mean. And I think that's the responsibility that anybody who's committed to revolutionary politics, but also to Christianity, to this idea that there's a kingdom that's not of this world or whatever, has to kind of cultivate in order to 
understand what's being said when people defend, you know, a monument to somebody who defended uh, white slavery or, or white enslavement. Uh, sorry, <clears throat> let me back up. Yeah. <laughs> when they defend a monument to somebody who defended white supremacy or uh, built uh, colonial missions in California or expelled Jews from France, etc. right? Th these are cultural heritage moments that are, in fact, uh, testaments to orders of violence. Yeah, I mean, the orders of violence thing is so important, right? That, um, that I mean, like, that's what the statue represents. Not only is it about, like, the uh, St. Saint Louis and all, like, all of the things that, you know, people associate with, with him, but, like... Uh, but also the violence that he perpetrated—it's—it's it's there. It's the—it's the underside of it, right? It's the—the the double side of the the statue that like you have to have the eyes to see, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, this is completely out of left field, but this is what our <laughs> podcast is about, I guess. I've been watching the show, um, <laughs> about pirates. It's called Black Sails. And it <laughs> is kind of amazing. Anyways, there's this moment. Um, so the the whole show—it's—it's it's complicated. It's long. Pirates, yar. Uh, it's great. Uh, anyways, uh, one of the um, one of the plots of like the later seasons is that um, this uh, so it, it all takes place around Nassau in the Bahamas and um, the uh, the English government. They're going to come back and sort of reassert their power. And they send this guy named Governor Woods Rogers, mm. which I think is a real person, but mm -hmm. it's not important. Anyways, so he's he uh, at first he like uh, kind of seizes power of the island by just like being really cool and being like the, uh, you know, just being the cool teacher that like everyone wants to be friends with. <laughs> and uh, so that works for a while. Uh, but then um, then all the pirates kind of get fed up with him and they kind of like chase him off the island. And uh, he's like, well, listen, civilization has many faces and it might look like me being really cool for a minute, but it also might might look like uh me bring incredible violence against these people on this island. And that's what he does. Mm. So anyways, I guess it just reminds me of that, right? That, that, that civilization has these different faces. Yeah. Um, that it looks, you know, it looks like a statue to us, like a statue of someone that we venerate as a saint or someone that we just like think is an okay person or whatever. But uh, there's like an underside of that, of the statue that is um, the, um, you know, obliteration of certain religious and ethnic groups and, um, and, you know, huge swaths of violence being done yeah yeah absolutely um i mean it's a good uh a good way of looking at it right because that's sort of the the conversation that i think marxists are always trying to drive is that what you take to be innocent or what you take to be i don't know neutral or benign or good even uh is often premised on a very bad thing like i always think of that that quote somewhere in capital where marx says that capital comes into the world dripping in blood even though you know we take it for granted as just the relations that we live within um right all right let me read uh one last thesis uh that i think is actually my favorite one um and then we should talk about christianity a little bit at the end here <laughs> uh all right so this is the thesis that immediately precedes the famous angel thesis so again a great deep cut if you're at the party and someone mentions that angel thing you can be like yeah but have you read thesis eight um <laughs> here it is uh, Benjamin says the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the quote emergency situation in which we live is the rule. We must arrive at a concept of history which corresponds to this. Then it will become clear that the task before us is the introduction of a real state of emergency and our position in the struggle against fascism will thereby improve. Not the least reason that the latter has a chance 
is that its opponents, in the name of progress, greet it as a historical norm. That is fascism. They greet fascism as a historical norm. The astonishment that the things we are experiencing in the 20th century are still possible is by no means philosophical. It is not the beginning of knowledge, unless it would be the knowledge that the conception of history on which it rests is untenable. Uh, there's a lot going on here, as always, but uh, I think what I like about it is this idea that for the oppressed, history is always an emergency, right? That um, it's always being precarious, being at risk. Uh, there's an assumption, I mean, Benjamin is writing at the heart of the rise of Nazism, which people viewed rightly as a, a situation of emergency. But Benjamin says um, it wasn't not an emergency before fascism. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just that this is a, you know, an intensification or a mutation of that emergency. And Benjamin says, what we really need to do is introduce something that would seem like a, an actual emergency to the ruling class, which would be, uh, socialism, right? A revolution, um, which is not what fascism is. Uh, but I think what's most important here is that Benjamin kind of keys in on that point that, uh, people are sort of shocked that things like fascism were possible in Germany in the 20th century. Mm -hmm just like people today are shocked that things like Donald Trump are possible in the 21st century. Um, but Benjamin says this says less about our philosophical ideas uh, and more about a very bad idea of history that would be shocked by something like that. You know, if you have an idea that all of history is a, a big um, growing pile of debris and wreckage, then it's not that much of a shock. And the key here is not, I don't think, uh, cultivating a kind of like adolescent pessimism, but cultivating something that recognizes the real suffering that exists at the heart of, you know, so-called normal life. And I think the statues are a great example of exactly this. Like, how extremely ridiculous and awful is it that in a moment when we're talking about decolonization and some people are saying we have to decolonize the church, the church is also doubling down on performing exorcisms over a saint statue that was removed, you know, this isn't a violent act or anything. This is the removal of a big piece of rock that looks like a person that says something that glorifies colonialism and people are trying to get rid of that. Uh, it's awful that the church doubles down against that kind of moment. Uh, and I think that's the sort of state of emergency that uh, people who are marginalized in the U.S. live in all the time, right? Walking by um, statues that remind you that um, it is not shameful to be a white supremacist. And I think that's the the kind of thing that Benjamin's concept of history at least drives us to think about. Yeah, totally. Well, let's maybe put some of this to work or in, into conversation with uh, Christian theology and ideas. I, I mean, like there's, you know, you could you could read Benjamin here and you could be like, OK, so if history is if it's, uh, you know, it, there's violence that kind of undergirds it. It is a uh, weapon of sort of like the ruling class, all these kinds of ideas, right? Then like, can't we just take these statues and blow them right up and just say, sorry, this is this is year zero now. And like, we're doing it all over again. Mm -hmm. And like, you could, I guess, that's like a thing that you could say. Um, but I think there's also some reasons to not do that. Not, I mean, the statues, who cares? The stat Get rid of the statues. That's not the problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the The problem is is more of like about the conception of history and like the ways that uh, we, you know, we use our history to kind of understand our place in the contemporary situation even. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the the person that always kind of comes to mind when in, um, things like this come up, right? Like, do, do we want to get rid of statues? 
do we want to get rid of statues because like it'll make us feel better and it'll kind of like help us atone for our sins or whatever like that that would suck right instead of doing that kind of thing i think marika rose uh who is i think the only good theologian alive right now <laughs> um i don't know anything about theology so maybe that's wrong there are probably other good theologians but marika rose is the, is the only good theologian alive right now that i know about she's the um, she's a magnificast approved theologian we can say that much <laughs> there we go that's what it is a- anyways all i'm trying to say here is that marika rose is a person that's really good uh that, that helps us think through like you, you know like what are the motivations behind um like responding to our history are we trying to get rid of our culpability are we trying to kind of like hide our sin away are we trying to uh forget the past or are we you know working to be accountable for the things that christians have done you know like the, that kind of idea i guess so I, I think that we, if we kind of bring Marika Rose in this situation, we can kind of understand that, you know, um, again, blow up the statues, who cares? But, um, well, I mean, people care, but not me. Uh, this, but that the the statue's not the problem. It's like the sort of historical understanding and striving for purity and the way that we like, retell these stories about St. Louis as like, a, as like a perfectly good saint or something that was just this really great ruler of France and there's something else going on. Right. Um, so if uh, we, we can use Marika to kind of re-understand our Christianity in light of those like uh, very hard parts of our past. Um, yeah. Is that good Dean? Should we say something else or, or can we kind of talk about what, what Marika says? Yeah, that's great. Let's go Marika. Put her on Let's the go. board. All right. <laughs> Put her on the board. All right. So um, in Rika's book, The Theology of Failure, which we've done an episode about and we've probably talked about a thousand times since the episode. It's, a, it's um, in the beginning of every episode. It's the last quote you hear before you hear us say something stupid about being welcome to the Magnificast. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, um, it's such a good book. It's so good. Buy it. Read it. <laughs> Bring that up at the party. Don't talk about Benny me at the party. Talk about this other <laughs> book. Um Anyways, the 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 whole book is great. It's like this really um, interesting uh, com- like conversation and like critique of Zizek and a lot of other people. But the conclusion of the book is super powerful. And I think it's like the most important thing that Christians uh, ought to be reading right now. Um, so she's basically kind of talking through this whole situation of like what what are Christians supposed to do with like um, the very troubling history of Christianity and the extremely troubling pathologies of christianity that kind of continue because of that history and that theology and uh so she starts off like this right so she's trying to be like she's trying to explain like what does it mean to be a christian in the first in the first place so she says uh to be a christian is to be a part of a community that is defined not by a particular figure of a perfect ideal christian but by the question what does it mean to be faithful to christ so this is like a really important starting place um, because, you know, we have people like saints. We have people, um, you know, whether they're Catholic saints or just like other people, saints in the more pejorative sense, um, are there to instruct us how to live better lives and be better Christians. But that's not primarily what a, but being a Christian is about. Like reverence to those people, I guess, could be nice. But, you know, what it's really about is being faithful to Christ. And what's interesting about framing Christianity in that way is that like being faithful to Christ might be, might mean being very unfaithful, maybe betraying Christianity, the the church, the institution. Um, And that is, I think a super interesting thing to think about with regards to this, right? Like it's what we see the archdiocese of St. Louis or, or, uh, you know, anyone else not doing right. Um, Because if you have a, if you have a saint who is actually pretty bad um, and, you know, not on the side of people who Jesus was on the side of, then uh, to be faithful to Jesus might mean to be opposed to those people, but that's not the route that we see folks taking here. Um, Yeah. Let me read one more quote from her before we, maybe we can Mm -hmm. have a bigger conversation about it. 
Um, so she says this too. The work of love for us is perhaps to freely choose our fate and to learn to love Christ's body on earth, our body, not according to desire, but according to drive. It is to labor to see the church in all its shabbiness, all its corruption, all its failures, and to love it as, not despite these flaws. It's to refuse to be drawn by the fantasy of some lost perfection, of a perfectly liberatory historical Jesus, of an inerrant original text of scripture, of a patristic inheritance has always already solved all the problems of the contemporary world. Um, again, th- this moment here is, is really good, right? It's it, So um, what it means to be a Christian is to be faithful to Christ and not to the church. But also there's this other thing here too, that it's like not ignoring the church altogether. It's like learning to kind of understand and accept it in all of its badness. Um, and, and, you know, it ends up being this thing that like basically exists for us to be mad about, but <laughs> Um, it's, uh, it's a better way than to just kind of paper over the, um, you know, the the ugly stuff. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, there's also a sense in which like, uh, not everyone is a Christian, of course, but we live in a world that has been so thoroughly Christianized and, uh, it's important to understand Christianity as a historical force and not just the, the, the best ideas that you have about it or the best possibilities that it might be. And I think that's what Marika always kind of reminds me to be thinking about. Um, and it, I think it's particularly relevant in these conversations about statues, right, which are especially statues of saints. What the church is actively trying to do is is exactly what Marika is opposing, which is to live in the fantasy of a, a sort of perfect church. Um, I mean, the best that uh, the institutional church has been able to do, it seems to me so far, is to say, yeah, yeah, I don't know, maybe they made a few mistakes, but by and large, like, these are some great, great saints that we should all (laughs) know and love. Um, You know, you you certainly shouldn't want to get rid of them. They're trying to point the way to be good, um, which is uh, not true. I mean, it is not historically true that that's necessarily uh, the most important thing, even about these people's lives, right? And, uh, I think that is the biggest sort of piece is to understand the church in all of its worldliness, all of its being sort of caught up in the shitty stuff that it does for Christian reasons, like not on accident or because it got fooled or whatever, but like because it was doing bad things like expelling the Jews from France or murdering a bunch of Muslims or whatever else. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that's maybe a good place then to, to bring in this last quote. This is the very last quote from her book. Um, So Marika says, once there was no secular, and yet the genealogy of the church of Christian theology is constantly interrupted, contaminated, and enriched by the profane, the abject, and the horrific. Theology is failure. The task then is to fail better, to liberate our others in order to begin the difficult work of learning how to love them. Um, And and I think this kind of like brings, brings the idea full circle that like, I don't know. There, there's no Christianity that's like gonna be good and whole and um, perfect, or you know, whatever. Um, theology is it, it, theology is about failure in, in that it's like always trying things that um, have that end up being the 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 catastrophe of history. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not like you can stop. It's not like you can go back and find the right one because if you did, it would be a complete construction. Um, and it would, you know, be better or worse. Who knows? <laughs> and um, I guess what I like about Marika's thought at the end of the day when it comes to this kind of thing is that the idea is just to, like, try something else. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it, you know, there's a part where she says, you know, try try a Christianity that starts from the the heretic and the witch and that kind of stuff, and that is extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know who gives a shit about these statues when there are different places to start. Um, there are better, there are other saints we should pay attention to as well. Yeah, it's like extremely exciting and at the same time very, um, like unsettling, right? Because you know that you're gonna mess it up at some point. Yeah, but like. Uh, no matter what you do, um, if you try to think from the position of the oppressed, like you might end up oppressing other people. Um, but there's this kind of uh, recognition of failure and the the assumption that, um, it, like, I take it that what I love about Marika is that she uh, she's not suggesting um, what we need to do is find, like, the best Christianity. Um, or like you were saying, like, we, we, we don't want to go back and find, like, the better one or something. Uh, but rather we should just accept that, like, we're not going to do a great job. Like, we're not going to be innocent in any respect. We we never have been and we're not going to be. And I think that is very important. Like, you know, it's the kind of thing that, like I said, if there is any kind of perfection to the saints, to the lives of the saints after they've died, right? If, if Junipero Serra and uh, King Louis IX are up there looking down or whatever, um, they would have to do so, I think, with a profound understanding of the failures that they brought into the world and with i would hope too a a profound embarrassment that the church which is supposed to take care of their legacies isn't on the side of the oppressed when it comes to remembering them you know that that they should be symbols precisely in their failure not because of their success and uh i think that is at least like a conversation that christians need to have about our own history Um, internally, but also how our history has become a part of that, uh, that cultural heritage that Benjamin rightly notes is not innocent. Uh, the cultural heritage that is written by the victors, um, you know, written in blood and, and only achieved over mountains and mountains of bodies. Yeah. It it kind of reminds me too of something else that we had read a while ago. Um, we read Rejoice by Bruno Latour and there's this whole thing in there where he says that you have to just like learn to metabolize everything in Christianity, right? The good and the bad. And I think that's kind of part of it too. Um, Starting over doesn't mean ignoring what's happened. It's just like learning how to take it all in and, and continue on. Right. Eating the big pizza, getting sick and then eating it all over again. Cause you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, But man, I can't stop eating it. I was born into this pizza, (laughs) pizza religion. (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's the whole thing about it is that you can't stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean there's probably a separate conversation to be had about like i don't know why still be a christian at all but i think at least like um first of all maybe this this isn't the right place to have it but uh there's a sense to in which it's kind of like some of us are condemned to be christian whether we want to be or not and uh <laughs> if that's the case then you know you got to do that with the full understanding of the kind of violence that you are inheriting the cultural heritage of violence that uh is being preached to you and as, as innocent but uh has come to shape your relationship to your neighbors and uh to people who are vulnerable and uh it might mean to follow christ that you have to betray those kinds of impulses and i think that is like at least a road to liberation that is really actually meaningful thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can find us on patreon.com slash the magnificast hey we just redid a bunch of stuff on our patreon and uh, right now if you subscribe to our patreon at the level of ten dollars you can get a cool patreon only sticker of benjamin lay 
The cool thing about that is it's the only one that exists. There's no other stickers of Benjamin Lay out there. And if there are, then we're in trouble making these claims. But whatever. Uh, so you should do that. Um, if you can't, though, that's also fine. You can also just leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate that a ton. You know, we haven't had any new iTunes reviews in a little bit, and we I think we need them. We're running, we're running dry. The podcast machine is running dry on uh, on podcast fumes. So we need your uh, we need your reviews. Uh, cool. Yeah, the intro music is by Mario Armstrong. The outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.